Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to this Federal Society Practice Group Courthouse Steps webinar. This afternoon, our panel of experts will discuss the Supreme Court's recent 5-4 decision in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. The case presented interesting jurisdictional questions about the ability to prosecute crimes in Indian country. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I am Vice President and Director of the Practice Groups and the Article One Initiative. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion on today's program are those of our speakers. In the interest of time, I will greatly abbreviate our panel's bios down to just their current titles. If you'd like to learn more about their accomplished backgrounds, please visit our website or the promotional emails for this program. Uh, today, we're very fortunate to have with us uh, David Kazaza, who is an associate attorney at Gibson Dunn. We also have with us Jason Mannion, who is also an associate at Gibson Dunn, um, as well as uh, Jennifer Weddle, who is a shareholder at Greenberg Trarig, and AJ Ferrati, who is uh, of counsel at Spencer Fain LLP. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to the final portion of our webinar. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank all of you for being with us today. David, I, I believe you are up first. Thank you, Nate. So just recently, the Supreme Court decided this case uh, brought by Mr. Castro Huerta challenging his conviction in state court. This is one of what's likely to be a number of cases that arise out of the Supreme Court's decision a few terms ago in McGirt. And in McGirt and a predecessor case, Murphy, uh, the Supreme Court held that Congress had not disestablished the Indian reservations that formed what was previously Indian territory and is now the eastern half of Oklahoma. Uh, the McGirt decision had substantial effects on state, tribal, and federal authorities because most of these institutions had operated on the assumption that this area was not part of what federal law calls Indian country, uh, basically Indian reservations. Now, that status as Indian country is crucial uh, because it involves very tangled webs of jurisdiction. <clears throat> and in particular here, it has a big impact on criminal jurisdiction. After McGirt, uh, a number of uh, state uh, people with state convictions, including uh, Castro Huerta, were able to have their state convictions overturned because of existing law stating that uh, crimes committed by or against Indians within Indian country were not within the state's criminal jurisdiction. Uh, most of these decisions were based either just on longstanding uh, federal common law with regard to Indian country, or with two statutes, the General Crimes Act, uh, the Major Crimes Act, and uh, Public Law 280. The Major Crimes Act is not part of Castro Huerta, but it'll probably be a subject of future cases. The General Crimes Act says that the general laws of the United States as to the punishment of crimes committed in any place within the sole and exclusive jurisdiction of the United States extend to Indian country. Public Law 280, uh, which is about 60 years old now, sets up a system whereby states and tribes can elect together to allow the state 
to prosecute crimes committed by or against Indians within Indian country. Oklahoma does not have these agreements with the tribes that are now in the eastern half of Oklahoma. So Mr. Castro Huerta was able to have his conviction overturned in state court because although he is not an Indian, the victim of his crime was. The state then petitioned for Supreme Court review, asking the Supreme Court to decide first whether McGirt should be overturned, and second, whether the state in fact did have jurisdiction uh, to proceed with a criminal conviction against a crime for a crime committed against an Indian. The court limited its review only to that second question and declined to reconsider McGirt. In a 5-4 decision, with a five-justice majority led by Justice Kavanaugh, the court held that the state does have concurrent jurisdiction with tribal and federal uh, authorities for crimes committed against Indians within Indian country. Uh, the dueling opinions just lay out a, a different background understanding of what's going on uh, within a reservation and how the interplay of powers works there. Justice Kavanaugh's majority is very clear that for them, Indian country is within a state's territory, uh, I'm sorry, Indian country within a state's territory is part of a state, not separate from a state. Therefore, the state has jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed in Indian country unless state jurisdiction is preempted. Justice Kavanaugh's majority then looks at a number of statutes that Castro Huerta points to, among them, General Crimes Act and Public, two law, uh, Public Law 280, and concludes that none of these statutes preempts state jurisdiction here. Finally, uh, the majority looks at a balancing test set out in a prior decision called Bracker to decide whether state jurisdiction is just incompatible with tribal self-government, uh, in which case you could have a sort of field preemption, even absent some express statute. Uh, the court concluded that that was not the case here and that there was no basis for preemption, and therefore the state had jurisdiction. Justice Gorsuch, on the other hand, wrote a very powerful uh, dissenting opinion joined by three other justices, and, in which he started from the assumption that the state is precluded from operating here unless it has some uh, grant of authority by Congress. He then reads Public Law 280 to reaffirm this uh, basic layout of power, and finds that because uh, Oklahoma has not been granted this authority, has not entered into these Public Law 280 agreements with tribal authorities, there's no basis for tribal jurisdiction. Uh, there's, these are two very strongly expressed and differing views of the relationship between federal, tribal, and state law, and, and there are a number of areas in which the majority reserves questions not addressed here, uh, which are likely to be the subject of a number of follow-on decisions. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll pass things over to Jason for his commentary and for a discussion of the impact on the state. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so as David mentioned, I'm going to address some of the impacts on state and local law enforcement as a result of the McGirt decision. Um, and then just add a few thoughts about the opinions themselves. Uh, before I do so, I represented clients, uh, including the city of Tulsa in this litigation, and just want to make clear that anything I say today are my own views, not the views of the clients that I represented. Um, so to start with the impacts, um, you know, this case came before the court in a somewhat odd posture. So the issue before the court was um, the, 
the question, the first question presented, should the court overrule McGirt? If not, should the court uh, decide this question about state criminal ju jurisdiction? But it came up in the posture of a direct criminal appeal. And what that meant is that there was no ability um, or reason for, you know, parties outside of the initial prosecution to build a record within the normal adversarial process on the facts on the ground. And so the court had before it, in this case, a competing set of amicus briefs, um, some of which um, generally from state and state and local law enforcement uh, you know, presented a view that McGirt's consequences have been really significant um, and uh, uh, really bad for law enforcement efforts in Oklahoma. Um, but you had uh, briefs on the other side, including from the uh, former federal prosecutors, from some of the tribes that were would, are in eastern Oklahoma, um, acknowledging that there had been maybe growing pains um, or some initial, initial but inevitable difficulties from McGirt, but ones that were not likely to be lasting and also were not as bad as the state authorities claimed. Um, so that's what the court had before it. Um, but you know, I'm going to cover more of the, the state side amici and some of the examples that they had uh, presented to the court. Um, and overall, these amici stress that um, when McGirt ousted the state of Oklahoma from being able to prosecute crimes, committed by or against Indians in almost half of the state that dramatically increased the law enforcement burden, both for the federal government and for the tribes, um, but that the federal government and the tribes have been unable to keep up with that increased burden. Um, there have been, according to the amicus briefs, a 400% increase in federal criminal filings in uh, some of the uh, affected districts there. And uh, despite that increase, um, federal prosecutors were still required to prioritize cases and with violent offenders typically being prosecuted to the exclusion of others. And there were specific examples that some of the briefs highlighted, and I'll just highlight a couple of those. Um, one involving a violent burglary of an Indian Tolson in his apartment. Um, according to a police report, he heard a knock on his door, heard someone saying that this was the Tulsa Fire Department there for a smoke alarm check, but instead it was one of his former tenants who had been banned from the property and it assaulted him in the past. Um, the suspect forced his way inside, punched him in the, the victim in the face, kicked him in the chest, and the U.S. Attorney's Office declined to prosecute. Uh, another example in the briefs um, was a first-degree burglar who initially was not armed, or violent, um, the United States Attorney's Office declined to prosecute, and the burglar reoffended within the same month. And according to the police report, the FBI, uh, after the initial burglary, said because this wasn't a violent crime or one that involved a gun, they didn't have the resources to prosecute. Um, in the second burglary, in that example, the suspect was armed with a knife. Uh, another example, so those were burglaries, but there, there are other classes of crimes that were not being fully prosecuted. Um, crimes that were impactful to the victims, but not maybe as serious. So one of the examples in the briefs was um, uh, a, a member of the Cherokee tribe 
within Indian country, caught her neighbor peeping in a window as she got out of the shower. And you know, the tribes couldn't prosecute because the defendant was non-Indian. The state couldn't prosecute under the pre-Castro Huerta um, view of the law. And so she contacted the federal officials who declined to press charges. And the victim's statement said, basically, unless I'm murdered or raped, there's nothing, there's no law and order for me or anyone that's on an Indian role in Northeast Oklahoma. Um, but even when there was prosecutions, um, defendants would sometimes receive lower sentences thanks to plea bargains in the federal system than in the state system. So one of the examples in the briefs uh, involved a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation who broke up with her non-Indian boyfriend. He then shot and killed her. Um, the state before McGirt had successfully prosecuted him for first degree murder. And that resulted in a sentence of life in prison without parole. Um, he appealed, thanks to McGirt, his conviction and sentence were vacated. Um, the US Attorney's Office ultimately um, allowed him to plead guilty to second degree murder. And so for the same conduct that had previously uh, resulted in a life sentence, um, this defendant received uh, only 25 years. So these were among the examples. But as I said, the overall theme was that only violent crimes were being prosecuted or certainly prioritized. And that that was leaving um, other serious crimes that the state would typically prosecute to go uh, unprosecuted. A um, couple quick thoughts about the opinions themselves. Um, as David mentioned, the court was initially presented with two uh, questions. One, asking the court to overrule McGirt entirely. One, asking the court to take this more limited question that would remedy some but not all of McGirt's consequences. And as you read the opinions, I think particularly the dissent, you'll see some strong language that suggests that the result in this case was a major blow to tribal sovereignty. Um, I think the practical reality is much more limited than the rhetoric might suggest. Um, so before this case, tribes could not prosecute non-Indians. Uh, afterwards, the exact same thing. Tribes still cannot prosecute non-Indians. Beforehand, states could not prosecute Indians who committed crimes against non-Indians in Indian country. Afterwards, the same thing. Um, this decision has not resulted in tribes losing any prosecutorial authority. It has also not resulted in states gaining any prosecutorial authority against Indians. So the only difference after this case uh, is that non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians are um, under two sets of uh, laws and could be prosecuted by two authorities, which is similar to every other class of crimes within Indian country. Um, in some cases, it would be a, a, either, so just the federal government or a tribal government. In some ca cases, um, this case, this class that Castro Huerta decided, it is now the federal government and states, um, which just equalizes and uh, the uh, ability for crimes involving non-Indian perpetrators against Indian victims. Uh, and so I think after this case, uh, you know, McGirt and 
the rest of McGirt is still good law. Uh, as David mentioned, I think the majority opinion was pretty careful not to endorse current understandings of some aspects of um, Indian law, while also making clear that it was not altering them in this case. So uh, there could be a, there could be greater impacts going forward, but more from follow-on cases than this case, in my view. Um, and I think you know I think the major difference here uh, is just the different conceptions of the level of sovereignty enjoyed by tribes. Um, the majority of view appeared to view tribes as you know some lesser form of sovereign, um, lesser than say a state or another nation, which is consistent with Supreme Court precedent in other cases saying that tribes no longer possess the full attributes of sovereignty. Uh, the dissent takes a very different view. Uh, uh, as Justice Gorsuch says, tribes are not private organizations within state boundaries. The reservations are not glorified private campgrounds. Tribes are sovereigns. So he just viewed them as being much more like a state. And he drew that analogy that a state, it, it would be no answer in a case involving two states to say, well, we would have two just one extra set of prosecutors, one extra sovereign here. That's not, uh, that wouldn't address an injury to a full sovereign. Um, my last quick point before I hand it over to AJ is that um, the dissent at the end went out of its way to try to limit Castro Huerta, including by insisting that the analysis uh, was limited to only the Cherokee nation um, and that nothing about the majority opinion prejudged the answer for any other tribe or any other state. Um, but, you know, that's not the way it played out after McGurt. McGurt involved one tribe, one state, but uh, it was quickly expanded to the rest of the tribes in eastern Oklahoma. So it will be interesting to see, um, presumably there will be the follow-on litigation in the Oklahoma state courts that will see whether Castro Huerta applies uh, whether the result in Castro Huerta applied equally to other tribes in Eastern Oklahoma. Um, Justice, Justice Gorsuch suggested it shouldn't play out that way, but I, you know, it remains to be seen how it will. Uh, AJ. Yeah, thank you, Jason. And and to your point, the, the first decision using McGirt was actually in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, it was used in a in a matter involving the Oneida Nation and whether they needed to use a uh, or get a city permit for their festival that they held on their land that was within city limits. Um, but uh, so th this case could have impact outside of Oklahoma, but just like McGirt, its primary impact or its primary area of focus is 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 here within Oklahoma. So um, really just focusing on a couple of other areas as the one that's sitting here in Oklahoma City, I, I just wanted to highlight a few thoughts and, and some of these I shared on a different podcast last week. But um, it's been estimated that about 20% of the prosecutions that were occurring in state court would have, um, I don't want to say disappeared, but the state court would not have had those prosecutions had, um, had Castro Huerta gone the other way. Um, and, and to cite some of those, I, I similarly to Jason and similarly to Jennifer had briefs in the, had a brief in the case. Um, in the brief that, that I wrote, we used the U.S. courts data, uh, which showed that 
Uh, the Eastern District of Oklahoma represents currently 57% of all federal homicide prosecutions. Uh, that's not something that had happened prior. Um, but just to go to show how difficult it is for the federal government to handle all these prosecutions, they're certainly handling the, the more significant major crime, major, major crimes, I guess, I suppose is what I'll call them. Um, uh, some of the other major crimes, the burglaries, the larcenies, the, th the thefts that um, should now also be handled by the federal government, uh, those are not occurring. The, the, there was a national increase of about 6% as a result of those, according to the U.S. courts, which is leaving a, a significant number of these um, without attention. Um, and that's not to say that once the federal government, once the tribes get up to speed, that those will continue to be an issue, but they are currently an issue and uh, are, are causing uh, a lot of confusion um, within, within Eastern Oklahoma and, and arguably uh, Oklahoma as a whole. So um, I really wanted to focus a little bit on, on a little bit of the interplay. Uh, Jennifer and I last week discussed a little bit how you can't look at these cases in a silo. You kind of have to look at them all in a, in a holistic sense. Uh, look at Izelta and Dinespi kind of in a similar uh, vein. But in this particular instance, it's worth looking at Dobbs, interestingly enough, in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, um, as Dobbs passed, uh, giving the states the ability to determine how to deal with um, the abortion rights in, in each and every state uh, in the country. Um, the state of Oklahoma uh, initiated perhaps some of the most stringent abortion rights in the country uh, as soon as that case passed um, or case came through with its result. And what happened in Oklahoma as a result of that is that um, shortly after the same day that the decision came down, there was discussion about the federal government uh, partnering perhaps with the tribes to offer uh, abortion services within the borders of those reservations. Um, it was an interesting discussion that I think really kind of Castro Huerta maybe uh, took it in a different direction than it might have gone otherwise. Because as a result of Castro Huerta, um, it now says that a if, if you violate state law, if you, for example, uh, are a non-Indian tribe member abortion provider, um, you are subject to the laws of the state of Oklahoma. Um, now, certainly there's the licensure requirements, but I think that the tribes each have their own regulatory ability that they could have licensed physicians independently from the state of Oklahoma. So I don't know that that would have been a direct impact, uh, but for Castro Huerta, but because Castro Huerta is now in place and is the, the law um, relating to this type of, of issue, it now actually prevents, um, it makes it more difficult to actually go find physicians that can actually practice in this area and practice these sort of issues. I did want to touch a little bit on, on what Justice Kavanaugh talked about uh, related to public law 280 as well. And, and he tries to respond back to Justice Gorsuch on this point. Um, but he, he really focuses on the fact that this is not the, the downfall of public 280 that, that it seems to be because public law 280 allows states to prosecute 
tribal members and non-tribal members. But really what we're dealing with here in this instance is an exclusive um, allowance for the state to continue to prosecute non-members. Now, um, he gives a number of lengthy justifications that, that Jason uh, went into and, and gave an expert opinion on. But those are those are really what is at base on this decision is that the reservation remains in the state, according to Justice Kavanaugh. The state has authority over non-members and there is no language. I'm, I'm going to you know go back to the McGirt decision that said there that we didn't see the magic words. Right. Justice Gorsuch suggests that no magic words have been provided to say that the reservations have been disestablished. So they remain in existence. Now, there are some that, that say that the Solem test, um, you know, was just clarified by Justice Gorsuch. I, I think that Solem was eliminated and, and there's a one point Solem test now, if you will, under McGirt, where where are the words of disestablishment? And I think. In a similar way, that's what Justice Kavanaugh does, is he goes through and says, where are the magic words that the state lost its jurisdiction when Public Law 280 was passed or uh, under reservation, uh, under the law uh, regarding Native Americans and the Major Crimes Act and the General Crimes Act? He, he's looking for those magic words, uh, perhaps in an opposite way to what Justice Gorsuch was looking for. And that is the reason um, that we saw uh, the 5-4 decision that we did. Uh, I want to go back and reiterate what uh, I did say last week as well. We talked a little bit about, um, you know, is this justice anti-tribe or is this justice uh, not or pro-tribe? Uh, I, I don't think we can really glean any of that from what we're discussing here. I think that, um, for example, I, I had a professor email me and, and ask me my thoughts on Justice Barrett, and I don't think you can reach any conclusion. I, I think that she's struggling with these, just like many of the other justices on a case-by-case -case basis. She's trying to figure out what the statute says in a particular situation, what the treaties say in a particular situation, what are the jurisdictional or criminal issues that we're trying to wade through. Um, similarly in Denespe, um, you know, as somebody who was in the military, I know that I could be arrested by the military and I can be arrested by the state police if I uh, commit a crime in a similar situation. And I think some of those parallels kind of uh, leap over a little bit as we're dealing with um, some of these tribal issues. So you really do have to look at them on a case by case basis. I don't think anybody can come to any conclusion that anybody in particular is pro-tribe or anti-tribe just because they are taking a particular position in a case or a particular vote in a case. Jennifer? Thank you, AJ, and uh, completely agree that uh, we should all resist the urge to label the justices in a particular way and instead try to look at what's really driving both the majority and the dissent and what can we look to for any predictive ability in this space going forward. And uh, I really appreciated Jason's framing of the narrowness of this decision um, when questioning its practical impacts. And I think, uh, most Indian law practitioners like me would agree that on its face, yes, the holding is narrow. There's not any jurisdiction taken away from tribes. There's there's nothing all that new or different here other than 
putting back in place what had been the common understanding in Oklahoma prior to the McGirt decision about the ability of the state to prosecute crimes with Indian victims within much of Eastern Oklahoma. Um, but I think where a lot of the really emotional reaction you've seen from Indian country uh, in the last uh, week plus has been driven by the sense of loss on that predictive ability because of where the majority went in their opinion, upending understandings that Indian country has had for, for 200 years and not looking as they have in all these other cases to the to the point of show me the text, point to me exactly where or when something changed. What did Congress say? What did the tribe say? And AJ and I talked in our webinar last week about how in Denezpi and Isleta, the court was very much sticking to the text. What did the Ute Mountain Ute tribe said in its own code that created the offense? And that was being prosecuted in Denezpi. And similarly, you know, had Congress used the word regulate or prohibit in uh, assessing the Texas Tribes uh, Restoration Act and subsequent ability to engage in bingo games. Um, in cases where the court sticks to the text, generally we all feel pretty comfortable that we can predict where they would go in future cases. And here, the majority has thrown that out with the bathwater. And as Justice Gorsuch uh, described it in his dissent, uh, truly a more ahistorical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom. Um, Justice Gorsuch is not a man who's prone to hyperbole. Uh, and he said really exactly what uh, every Indian law lawyer who's read the majority is thinking is, you know, where on earth did this come from? And I think pretty plainly as, as David and Jason and AJ all sorted out, it's coming from really policy objectives. And Justice Kavanaugh says it as much in the majority opinion, um, where he says this was never a problem until McGirt, and McGirt recognized a much different understanding of the legal lay of the land than had been in place in Oklahoma, and essentially says, well, we're talking about 43% of Oklahoma. This is no longer scattered dicta about a question that until now is relatively insignificant in the real world. Well. I guarantee you this was very significant in Indian country forever and tribes have been acting on these understandings and trying to create and enforce public safety on their reservations. Um, so the idea that everything is suddenly changed, you know, is very different depending on what side of, of this case uh, your perspective is. Um, other big problems with, you know, for tribes about how uh, Justice Kavanaugh got here is, again, it, they state that this is very broad, and uh, I answered this question in the chat, that this broadly applies and tribes are part of states as, as if this has always been the case. And many states in the West have expressed limiting language in their enabling acts where they disclaim any interest in Indian land. And indeed, uh, Indians were not citizens until 1924. So uh, how on earth is it that supposedly this whole time states have had jurisdiction to, to prosecute crimes made against people who are not even citizens of the United States? Take into account another glaring issue, which is tribes are not citizens, <laughs> tribes are not parties to the Constitution. They didn't cede any authority uh, to the United States in the Constitution and rather um, 
all of that authority, um, you know, whatever authority the United States has rests on the Marshall Trilogy of the court, wherein the court uh, adopted the doctrine of discovery and found that uh, federal dominion over tribes was appropriate because of the non-Christian infidel status of Indian people and that land could only be conveyed to the United States and not to any other sovereign uh, government. Um, also should keep in mind that the Articles of Confederation had originally left uh, tribal relations as a matter to the states, and that was a disastrous experiment. So they changed that in the Constitution and reserved the plenary power vis-a-vis -vis tribes exclusively to Congress. Uh, so uh, again, as the dissent points points out, uh, the majority opinion really glosses over all of that <laughs> and says, okay, well, at some point in the late 1800s, basically things changed and it's, it's totally different now, um, which again is inconsistent with everything that the court had said before. And I think the reality when you see these very strident opinions colliding is, is that the court continues to confront this issue with respect to the role of tribes in our federalism. Uh, and Justice Thomas actually described it well in his uh, concurring opinion in US v. Lara in 2004, where he said, federal Indian policy is to say the least schizophrenic. And this confusion continues to infuse federal Indian law and our cases. Um, Indian law has, has been routinely made up by the court with little direction by Congress. Um, Going back to some of the, the earliest cases, the Marshall Trilogy, which I mentioned, uh, Professor Lindsay Robertson at uh, the University of Oklahoma College of Law actually has great scholarship from 2005, uh, his book, Conquest by Law, um, where he got some of the original Marshall family papers that demonstrate very conclusively that uh, Chief Justice Marshall's opinion uh, influenced positively his own land deal with the Piankishaw Indians in, in Illinois. Um, so this was, you know, none of this is predicated on disinterest from the very beginning uh, with the Marshall Court. Um, and as federal uh, executive policy and congressional policy towards tribes has flipped over and over and over again in our history, um, as Justice Gorsuch notes, since the Nixon administration, we've been in the so-called self-determination era where tribal rights have been ascendant in uh, the halls of Congress and in the executive branch. And to see the judiciary curtail tribes' ability to make their own laws and be governed by them, um, to fail to recognize tribes' inherent right to exclude anyone from reservations, including state law enforcement, feels very much out of step with the other branches and feels very much like it could slide in any other direction. So who knows what lesser uh, abilities the court might perceive for tribes in the future. And hence why I think there's an even greater need as there has been for states and tribes to come together and try to negotiate this out and figure out what are regimes that work for public safety and for law enforcement um, and for Congress to help them sort it out if they can't come together and work through those issues. Nate, I think we're ready for questions. Yeah. <laughs> I can turn my, <clears throat> turn my camera back on for some reason. Hold on one sec, sorry for the difficulty. 
Well, you can hear me anyway. Sorry, I don't know why my video is not turning back on. Um, uh, I wanted to quickly, well, first uh, remind our audience that if you want to ask additional questions, please do throw them in the Q&A. Um, I wondered if we might talk a little bit uh, I don't know how much discussion there has been of the one question, the, the most recent. I know Jennifer and David separately responded to the question about uh, how this decision might complicate Indian gaming frameworks. Um, I don't know, David, if you wanted to jump in there and sort of give some of your explanation just for the benefit, both of the audience that didn't see it there. And then also for our podcast audience who won't be able to view the, the question that was in the chat. Sure, sure. So gaming, like criminal law, is an area where there are going to be a lot of overlapping state regulations, state laws, federal statutes on top of those, the Indian, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act in particular. Um, and at least with the approach that the majority opinion has taken here in Castro Huerta, the question in a lot of those cases is going to be, what does the specific text of the statute say about the state tribal relationship? So we saw that earlier this term with uh, Isleta del Pueblo, that the, there was a close analysis of the specific terms of the statute and of the interplay between Texas's laws and what Congress had said about those laws. And I think that's going to be the case going forward, where uh Certainly, the reasoning of the majority is that there's a presumption of state jurisdiction unless it's either ousted by Congress or is fundamentally incompatible with tribal authority. Um, but the, gaming is going to be one of a number of areas uh, in which this is going to continue to arise. And as Jennifer was saying, that there have been a lot of longstanding assumptions in Indian law about what how these powers play with one another. Uh, and in most places, it's been settled out if through state tribal negotiation, through some kind of congressional enactment. Uh, Oklahoma is not one of those places because until McGirt, um, there wasn't a recognition that those sort of uh, negotiated understandings were necessary. So really one of the unintended consequences of McGirt is that there's going to be a lot of um, legal re-examination in cases like this of things that uh, either folks thought had long was settled or that uh, folks didn't need resolved because they have some kind of specific negotiation already set out that governs their state or their tribe. You know, if I can just jump in here uh, in response to David, I, I think this raises a really important issue for Oklahoma. Um, the governor of Oklahoma and, and the tribes have really kind of even prior to McGurk being decided been at, at each other's throats over over gaming compacts. And um, I, I won't. That, that's a completely separate podcast to have a lengthy discussion of. But really, the issue that, that I'll, I'll focus on is. Um, uh, states in many instances, because of some of the things that we're discussing in these cases, are now very, very sensitive about dealing with compacting. I think they'd prefer a much more clear picture direct from the federal government. Um, I, I know that that's how Oklahoma feels as a result of McGirt, is they want that clear picture to come from the federal government rather than coming from, from between the parties, between the tribe and the state. Um, just really because a poor 
drafting of the language or a, uh, you know, and I know that's the problem with the gaming compact between the state and the tribe. Um, but whether it, it's not contemplating anything through unintended uh, unintended designs, um, those sort of issues. That's really why a lot of states, uh, including significantly Oklahoma, are really trying to look to the federal government to to deal with some of these and provide some of that guidance, as opposed to what used to be a, a trust or a symbiotic relationship between the tribes and the states. Very good. Jennifer, any further thoughts on that point before we move to the next question? Um, just on the gaming context, you know, I would say that that flows from what was a very foundational honoring of first principles in Indian law by the court in 1987 in the California versus Cabazon Band of Mission Indians case where the court held uh, quite rightly, in my view, that California had nothing to say about whether or not a Southern California tribe could engage in bingo. The court deals in a lot of bingo um, to engage in bingo on their reservation. And the court's answer was, yes, the tribe can do whatever they want on their reservation and California has nothing to say about it. Uh, and Congress quickly acted to say, okay, well, California doesn't, but we will. And we'll set up a regime that gives states a voice in the process, created the compacting structure, uh, and likewise set up a, a regime to put some parameters around licensure, background checks, rules that the tribe would uh, tribes would have to follow to engage in gaming. And that proliferated a whole industry. Um, but as Justice Stevens said in his dissent in Cabazon, the court's reasoning that the tribe could do whatever they want meant that the tribe could engage in all sorts of activities that were illegal in their home state. And he listed out a colorful list, including cockfighting, tattoo parlors, nude dancing, and, and prostitution, um, which might say a lot about Justice Stevens' views of Indian tribes. Uh, but he was right, legally speaking, as sovereign nations who retain all their inherent powers as nation states that they had at the time of the founding of the United States, and less than until Congress acts to limit that sovereignty in some way, that's true. <laughs> tribes are nation states that can do all of these things, and they haven't ceded any sovereignty to the United States in the Constitution and whatever power the United States federal government has exists now by virtue of this slender read of the doctrine of discovery, which is repellent to most people several hundred years later as the basis for conquest and jurisdiction of other people. Any further reactions before we move to uh, the next question? So here's a question that Jason's been working on, uh, typing out a long answer to. I'll read it for the benefit of our audience. What do you make of the fact that the court declined to consider McGirt as part of the petition? Doesn't it seem as if the change from Ginsburg to Barrett suggests that McGirt would be overruled if it were to be reviewed? Why rethink basic principles if the problem has, uh, or I'm sorry, what if the problem was the practical implications of McGirt? Uh, and Jason, would you like to take a stab at that one? Sure. So Jennifer beat me to it with a pretty concise answer, which was that there's no way that Chief Justice, Justice Roberts would have allowed the court to overturn a decision less than two years old. Um, you know, I think I think it's a very good question because I do think uh, the majority was quite clear about this. This legal question that the court took was not a legal question that really mattered before McGirt. And um, 
McGirt and the consequences of McGirt was the reason the court took this question. Um, I think that the fact that the court did not grant cert in McGirt um, in this case likely means the court won't grant cert in the case. And thus it proves that there are even more um, issues that can't be resolved in sort of follow on cases the way that this uh, case was resolved. Um, and you could reasonably view the court's decision um, as a compromise to leave McGirt in place, um, not formally overrule it, but to try to address some of the consequences of it. Um, you know, I don't know if it's right that the uh, switch from Justice Ginsburg to Justice Barrett now, certainly is a consequential switch. And I think it is clear that that switch means that if McGirt had made it to the court this term for the first time, rather than two years ago, there probably would not be five, I mean, there almost certainly would not have been five justices to reach the McGirt outcome. Um, but I think stare decisis complicates it, as Jennifer mentioned. And I think a, a similar analogy would be the whole women's health case from a few years ago, where Chief Justice Roberts was in dissent um, a year or two later, he concurred um, in a decision um, overruling a lower court decision that was inconsistent with it based on stare decisis grounds. Now, he did, he was fine with modifying the test in that case, um, but not, uh, not uh, getting rid of the case in this whole. Something similar happened here. Um, and, you know, I think maybe there will be more. Um, Maybe there will be more follow-on cases, uh, and maybe not. I think some of the uh, follow-on questions that the court was careful not to opine on in this case are ones that you can't easily get before the court. Now, like, for example, if this, if you wanted a, a decision, if you wanted to get the question of whether a state could prosecute a non-Indian who committed a crime against the Indian, an Indian in Indian country. Um, seems like the most efficient way would be to start a prosecution um, that is currently illegal. And I just, that's a very different, um, very different calculus than defending a prosecution that was legal at the time. I know uh, your job here is not to be uh, legal prognosticators, but I'm curious if the group has a sense of what if any, Congress's uh, attention and or uh, uh, responses will be to the case? So I, I think that um, that was kind of answered by McGirt, uh, I, I, I think, at least on the going forward basis. Um, when McGirt was decided, uh, anecdotally, uh, the federal delegation, the, the members of the members of the House and the, and the senators from Oklahoma um, began to take kind of an approach that um, they weren't going to bring anything forward. There wasn't going to be a consensus on this unless uh, the term at the time, unless all the mayors, all the tribes, uh, the governor, everybody needed to be on board on what that structure and plan looked like going forward, which I know I talked earlier about how uh, the state of Oklahoma is resistant to doing a compact on this. Um, well, the federal government <laughs> in, in opposite is uh, not willing to bring something forward uh, unless there's consensus 
uh, out of the state as well. Um, the other dynamic on this, of course, is is the current Democrat structure of Congress um, probably is not going to be uh, willing to advance anything in any way, shape or form unless they are told very clearly by the tribes uh, the answer. Um, otherwise, Nancy Pelosi is just not going to bring something forward on behalf of the Republican uh, members of Congress. Um, that that come from Oklahoma. So I, I don't see a path currently um, of willingness to do that. Now, the other issue that that I'll bring, uh, you know, Jason talked a little bit about some of these cases that are um, that are kind of bubbling up and, and um, we can all feel rightly or wrongly about those. But I think that some of these do require answers. Uh, there is a um, there is a case going on in the Western District of Oklahoma. Uh, Albert Lynn is representing the state of Oklahoma on that, trying to determine um, when the Department of Interior uh, took its uh, took the state's authority away uh, over mining. There now, admittedly, there's not a lot of coal mining in Oklahoma anymore. But when the federal government revoked its the state's authority to regulate mining, um, did that follow a proper path under McGirt uh, and really under the Administrative Procedures Act? But there's a number of these questions that are going to need to be answered or clarified. I think that McGirt was only the start. I think Castro Huerta wasn't even the end of the first quarter. There's going to be a number of these that need to be clarified for decades to come, unless the tribes in the state can come to some sort of an agreement, whether that be by compact or at the federal level through through legislation. I jump I in there. Add, oh, go ahead, David. I would just briefly add that Indian law is an area where certainly in the last 50 years, Congress has been responsive to what the court has done. And in a number of cases, whether it's the enactment of IGRA or the Dura fix, that there are new statutes passed when Congress disagrees with something the Supreme Court has done. I'm just not confident that we have that dynamic in Congress anymore, that Congress is capable of acting quickly or forming a consensus now, that that spirit of legislating uh, may no longer be in D.C. Um, I was going to agree with David's observation. You know, the likelihood of Congress doing anything is low and uh, much lower in a case uh, where it's complicated and there are strong views and historical issues uh, on all sides of it. Um, so it, as much as they might be interested um, and indeed number of senators attended oral argument in the earlier iteration when the uh, at Carpenter versus Murphy when the court was still entertaining in-person arguments. Um, they're engaged. They're hearing a lot about it from their constituents, both states and tribes, and not just in Oklahoma, but all over. Certainly the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs will almost certainly have some sort of hearing about the consequences of the decision uh, that, that I'm certain will happen sometime in the fall in all likelihood. Um, they may commission additional studies. Um, the, the majority's decision is clearly contrary to the recommendations of the Indian Law and Order Commission uh, convened uh, in 2010 in the Tribal Law and Order Act. Um, it's, it's also generally inconsistent with the expansions of tribal criminal authority recognized in uh, the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization. Um, 
there's lots of things that people, I think the people in the halls of Congress will be thinking about and hearing about, but I don't think it's likely to result in much. I also think we should avoid pigeonholing Justice Barrett in the way people seem to be very eager to do and think that, well, she clearly would have would have uh, been with the dissenters in McGirt. I don't think that we can or should assume that. Um, my own thought is Justice Barrett has been very careful about um, sticking very close to, to AJ's mantra of show me the text. <laughs> um, and she certainly did that in Denespi, where she wrote for the majority over a Justice Gorsuch dissent. Um, and in Isleta del Sur, where she joined Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion. Um, I don't think that we should believe that she's would be so quick to abandon the text. I do think she has a fundamental problem with the state not being able to protect tribal and non-tribal victims equally. Um, Castro Huerta was a, a child abuse case where a step-parent had severely abused his seven-year-old tribal member, stepdaughter, starved her, chained her to a bed in feces and cockroaches and bed bugs. And I think just, you know, as a working mom, Justice Barrett has a problem with that not being prosecutable um, to the fullest extent possible and has maybe somewhat of a euphemistic view that, well, more, more law enforcement has to be better, right? And Justice Gorsuch, I think, does a good job in the dissent about explaining why that isn't necessarily so. Uh, but I don't think we should see this as opening the floodgates to undoing every understanding that hasn't ever been expressly stated by the court. Um, that's kind of what Justice Kavanaugh's majority opinion says is, well, nobody ever asked us this exact question. So here's what we're saying now. Um, despite the fact that every predictive ability reading all of our other cases would have told you the answer was the opposite. Um, there may be cases that the court has never expressly answered the question. And I think uh, coming back to my comments, that's where tribes are concerned is our ability to predict where the court will go based on their precedence is completely out the window. You know, it did to your to your point on that, Jennifer. Um, you know, we talked about uh, pro-tribe, anti-tribe a little bit ago. Uh, you know, we talk about McGirt. Would McGirt be decided differently today if um, you know if if Justice Barrett were on the court or not? We do, we don't know the answer to that. I don't know if we will know the answer to that. But what's interesting about that is, is that um, many believed that Justice Ginsburg was quote unquote anti-tribe uh, at one point in history. Um, so it, it, again, just kind of revolves around to this discussion of, I think the justices look at these on a case-by-case -case basis. I think that's right. And the majority opinion here, uh, agreeing with what Jennifer said, really laid out a number of areas where there is there had been a common understanding of what federal law was uh, without necessarily there having been a Supreme Court holding specifically on that point. And here, the majority, in addition to being careful not to continue to make those statements, signaled an openness to um, addressing them in what they would view as the first instance going forward. So it, it's certainly an unsettled time in Indian law. And I think AJ's right that we're we're really in the beginning of what are going to be a series of cases that come out of McGirt and these related issues. So I, I want to jump in. I know we have to end early, David, but... 
Um, I'm reminded of uh, President Andrew Jackson's reaction to Chief Justice Marshall's decision in Worcester, which of course is recounted so much in, in this particular opinion, um, where he said, well, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. And I think we may very well have the same reaction to Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, um, at least in Indian country, where people say, uh-huh, yeah, no, that's we're not going with that. Um, and the reaction is going to play out much more boots on the ground than in the halls of Congress or in additional uh, court cases, especially in very rural Indian country, uh, which is not going to react well to state law enforcement just showing up in the in the unlikely event they were to do that. What are the open questions about how tribal and federal law enforcement would cooperate with state law enforcement in the first place? Just because you have the prosecutorial authority doesn't mean you have anybody there boots on the ground to get you information for those prosecutions. Um, it's going to take some cooperation to make this work for everybody, and it's not just going to come down from on high. Very good. <clears throat> I think we'll have to let that be the last word. We appreciate uh, all of our participants today. On behalf of the Federal Society, uh, thank you for the benefit of your insights and expertise. I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. If you have a question that you, you want to get answered that you weren't able to fit into the program, please do feel free to uh, send an email along to uh, uh, the folks uh, on the panel, and I'm sure uh, they'll get to it uh, and be helpful, uh, as always. Uh, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Uh, keep an eye out for on our website for upcoming programs, in, including in three minutes, the uh, Egbert uh, uh, Courthouse Steps decision. We certainly have a lot of uh, busy week and a lot of great cases to talk about this week. Thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a great one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.